After the Virus, Season 1, Episode 4. Still with me? I'm honored to have you along on the adventure. Many of the scenarios depicted in the story, but certainly not all, draw on my richly varied personal experiences in the outdoors. You'll notice that I name specific birds and edit bird songs and calls into the background audio. This knowledge of birds and their songs is drawn from my real-life experiences as a field ornithologist and a birding tour guide. I'm careful to use only recordings of birds that are native to the area and habitat depicted in the episode. For instance, in the last episode, we heard California scrub jays, Pacific wren, Pacific slope flycatcher, white-throated swifts, and others found in Deer Creek Canyon in the spring. In this episode, Will's focus is unexpectedly shifted from plants, animals, and foraging by an encounter that will completely change his plans, his perspective, and the trajectory of the story. I think you'll end up liking the changes. April 30th. Decided on another strategy for smoking my food well away from my cave. Heading about a mile up canyon, I found a small, hard-to-reach level spot under a heavy tree canopy. I constructed a drying rack, jerked the turkey, and started a fire. Burned it down to coals, added green wood, hung the meat, then found a vantage point about 100 yards away. Every half hour or so, I would sneak back to add more green wood. I watched for scavengers and also napped off and on between trips to the fire. In this way, by dusk, I had enough dried turkey to last many days. May 1st. Many of the native songbirds are now nesting, so I was out searching for eggs when I felt the percussive chopping of a helicopter. Coming over the ridge was a large Sikorsky Blackhawk gunship, moving swiftly, but not towards me. In less than a minute, it was hovering over the opposite ridge north of the creek, perhaps a half mile from me as the crow flies. Suddenly, I could see muzzle blasts as the machine gun unleashed hundreds of rounds. I could not see what it was shooting at, but after another minute or so, it ascended straight up, paused as if to survey the damage it had inflicted, then slowly moved down canyon, stopping now and then along the way. As the opposite ridge was a half-day hike each way for me, I decided I will go early tomorrow morning to investigate. May 2nd. I started out before dawn, crossed the creek, then climbed, sometimes hand over hand, up the steep east-facing canyon wall to the ridge where the gunship had been the day before. First, I stumbled upon evidence of a primitive camp hidden among some boulders and blue oaks. Another hundred yards, and I came upon the first pool of blood. Then bits of gore, chunks of flesh, hair, brain matter to all of which I gave a wide berth. Coming around a thick clump of poison oak, I dropped to my hands and knees and vomited upon finding the tattered remains of what appeared to be a large family group. By their sizes, there appeared to be three grown men, two adult women, and five or six children, as well as two large dogs. The carcasses were so badly torn up by the machine gun that whole body parts were missing, and pieces of limbs and skulls were strewn about the ghastly scene. 
so much death. First the general population, then my family, and now here in the wilderness, a search and destroy campaign. Is there no end to it? I stumbled away in a daze, down the ridge for a distance, looking for a safe place to climb down the steep drop off from the ridge. Dropping down the rock face, I came over a protruding lip, and suddenly in front of me was a hidden opening and a skinny teenage girl of perhaps 15 or 16, staring wide-eyed at me. I was so startled that my instinct was to climb quickly away. After scrambling 20 feet or so, I regained my composure. This was a live human, a child. I could not just run away. I returned to peer into the opening. The petite blonde girl was laying at the back of the opening, head on her arms, sobbing. I watched her, looked over her general health and condition. She was filthy and her clothes were threadbare, but otherwise she looked healthy. Good color, thin but sinewy arms, hair in a tight braid. Finally, she looked up and saw me, but immediately backed as far away as she could, shaking in fear. I said, I won't hurt you. I want to help you. She stared right through me, showing no indication that she had either heard or understood what I said. Seeing that she had no supplies with her in the recess, I told her to stay there and I would bring her food. She continued staring blindly. Hiking down the ridgeline, away from the carnage, I collected various foodstuffs. Clover, pine cone buds, manzanita berries. Returning to the cave, I found her where I had left her. Speaking slowly and gesturing dramatically, I laid the results of my foraging, along with some dried turkey from my pack, at the lip of the cave. Then I realized that I had a dilemma. She would need water. I had a bottle with me, but I was afraid that she might infect it with any disease she might be carrying. I solved it by filling the plastic sandwich bag that had held the turkey with water, sealing it, and placing it by the other items. Then I moved 50 feet away to where I could see the food. After a while, I saw one item after another disappear from the edge. I went back to the opening and she was there, rolled up in a dirty blanket. I couldn't just leave her there to fend for herself. I sure wasn't going to risk infection from her. She would need lots of food and water. I decided to sacrifice my water bottle, which was half full. I left it for her along with a simple note, assuming she could read. I'll be back with more food. Wait here. I also left her my sweatshirt, as I could not make it back by nightfall, and the blanket would not be adequate to keep her warm overnight. I headed back across the canyon to my own cave. May 3rd. Arrived back at the cave after dark last night. Woke early and grabbed some cans of food, more turkey, and an empty five-gallon water jug. Hiked down to the creek where I filled the jug and then toiled uphill with 40 pounds of water. Leaving the jug at the base of the rock outcropping, I found the girl sitting at the back of the opening, staring out at me. There was no expression of happiness, yet there was also none of the fear evident yesterday. I placed some turkey at the mouth of the opening and opened a can of peaches, then backed away. She dove for the food ravenously consuming it all in minutes. When she was done, she again stared at me. Set your water bottle here. I'll fill it for you, 
I said, breaking the silence. She immediately retrieved the empty bottle and placed it where the food had been. Back away. I don't want to get sick, I requested, and she complied. I snatched the bottle and scrambled down the rocks to fill it from the jug. When I returned it to the ledge, she waited for me to move away before she advanced to the bottle and rapidly gulped down nearly half of the contents. We sat there, staring at each other for a long while. I asked her her name. No response. Then I asked her her age. She first held up one finger, then six fingers. A breakthrough. We were communicating. Sixteen years old. Noting her tattered and soiled clothing, I asked her if she had anything to wear. She shook her head, no. I asked her if anyone in her group had been sick. Her eyes welled up, and then she shook her head emphatically, no, and then began to sob. I found myself trying to console her from ten feet away. Her crying made my heart ache. She curled back up in the corner. I called to her that I would be back. Searching along the base of the rocky escarpment, I found a small overhang, just big enough for me to stretch out in and cache some of the cans that I had brought with me. I would make it a temporary bivouac while I took care of the girl, I decided. I stored the water jug behind a bush, then laid in the opening and attempted to sort out my thoughts and come up with a plan. I decided I would stay nearby and feed the girl for the standard two-week quarantine period. We were two days in, so I would spend the next 12 days nursing her from a distance. As dusk approached, I took her a can of tuna and a can of pears. After watching her eat, I told her stories of pleasant times, long before the virus, when there was beauty and people were happy. I avoided any talk of family. I stayed until I watched her wrap herself in her filthy blanket and doze off. May 4th. I slept under the small overhang, happy to have it as it had rained in the night. I took some more food and water to the girl who actually looked a little pleased to see me. I told her I was going to set some snares and then come back. As I was leaving the cave, I lost my footing on the rain-slicked rock and fell maybe 10 feet. I hit my head, breaking my nose, bloodying my face, and loosening a tooth. I guess that I was unconscious for a few minutes, because my next realization was that she was there, stroking my hair. I recoiled at finding her touching me, which frightened her, and she slid away from me on the rock, realizing that if she were sick, it would probably already be too late for me. I motioned for her to come back, which she did, and returned to comforting me. I was groggy and sore and bloody. She helped me up and waited with me as the dizziness dissipated. We walked together to the water jug, and she scrubbed the blood from my face with a dampened bandana. I spent the rest of the day nursing my swollen face. We shared a dinner of canned Spam roasted on sticks and split a large can of applesauce. Climbing back to her cave, we prepared to sleep, and just as I was dozing off, she clearly spoke the word, Hope. You hope what? I asked. It's my name, she replied. May 5th. After a fitful sleep, with my face throbbing, I began preparing before sunrise to return across the creek to my cave with hope. She carried her blanket, I dumped out the water, and we headed downslope, 
Although the creek was fordable for me, it was possibly too swift for Hope, so I carried her across on my back. The cabin flat was unchanged, and I found no trace of other humans, although among the many animal tracks, I thought I could again make out the tracks of a lone dog, perhaps the one who had escaped my bow. We made it to my cave, and I showed her where everything was and how I kept everything hidden. I made room for Hope in the little side room by moving some supplies out of the cave and under a nearby overhang. I showed her where the spring was, where the pit toilet was, and where the guns were hidden. We spent the rest of the day settling in. May 6th. I spent the day teaching Hope the edible and medicinal plants around us, as well as those to be avoided. She's a fast learner, and by day's end, she could identify most everything we had looked at. The day was warm, and the night was pleasant. May 7th. Because Hope won't be able to draw a full-sized bow at her age and size, I taught her a variety of snares and traps. A simple loop snare, a twitch-up snare, and a box trap. After I showed her how to make them, I had her practice, and we eventually set out one or more of each. Then we left to do a little hunting. It was hard to be stealthy with two of us, but I did manage to shoot a ground squirrel that had poked its head out of a hole and stared at us. We saw deer at a distance, but nothing else that we could get a shot at. Returning to Hope's traps, she was elated at her success. The box trap contained a California scrub jay, which we decided to release. The twitch-up was tripped but empty, and one of the loop snares held a gray squirrel. I showed her how to gut and skin her first squirrel. She'll have plenty of opportunities to dress squirrels in the future. Tonight, we feasted on gray squirrel and a mixed salad of miner's lettuce, clover, and grape leaves. May 8th. Today I showed Hope how to start a fire with a bow drill, even though I have many boxes of wooden matches stored. She was not able to make a fire herself, but did make a little smoke. We bathed in the creek and caught a few fish. No signs of man at the cabin flat. That's the end of episode four. Now there are two in the wilderness. Episode five details how this alliance changes both of them.